Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello and welcome to Smart Fuel Podcast. I hope you're all ready to expand your brains this episode. I am your host, Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And today we're going to talk about right versus wrong. Actually, we're not even really going to talk about right too much, and this isn't in the moral sense. We're actually going to talk a little bit about how you can learn from your mistakes and why you hate being wrong so much. I know that just a couple weeks ago, I was putting down my bet on the Super Bowl game, and I bet incorrectly. I bet for the Steelers. I was pretty upset, so I was hoping that our guest this week could explain how I can take away the good in that. And I'm very interested to interview the guest today, mainly because I know that in past relationships that I've had, being wrong and refusing to be wrong is one of the things that tends to make those relationships go south. And Chris, I don't know if you're if you're in the same boat as me. I'm never wrong. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> but I hate being wrong. And when I am wrong, a lot of times I'll try to find other things to be right about. When you're wrong, you just pull out your phone and check out Google. That That's also true. It's your MO. It is. Do you want to explain to people what MO means? I actually don't know what that even stands for. Yeah, money order? Who knows? Oh, that's a good point. Aside from the small arguments that you might get in on a day-to-day basis, I was just as concerned, just as interested in learning about the big decisions in life 
how you can take away any good from totally screwing up. I mean, when I think back about how, you know, I left the comfort of a paycheck back home to do something like this and grind it out, it's an interesting experience, but who knows if it was the right choice or not. So hopefully our next guest can explain how to take the good out of wrong and leave right alone. Speaking of making right decisions and wrong decisions, the right decision would be next time you purchase something from Amazon, go to our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. Bottom left-hand corner, there's an Amazon widget. Just click on the Amazon button, bring you to the store, whatever you purchase from there. It gives us a small commission at no cost to you. just helps us with the cost that we incur on a weekly basis. The guest that we have for today's episode is Katherine Schultz. Katherine Schultz is a freelance journalist who's written for the New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, Nation, Foreign Policy, Boston Globe, and she writes the Wrong Stuff blog at Slate. She frequently contributes to the Freakonomics blog at the New York Times. Katherine is also the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Please enjoy our interview with Katherine. First, I guess, wanted to just talk about your book, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. I was hooked on it. I read the initial part, the preview on Amazon, and I was like, I got to look further into this because I never thought about how badly I in particular and people in general want to be right. <laughs> and what kind of caused you to come across that thought process? Well, you know, it's a, it was kind of a strange thing. I, I wish that I could tell you that I had sort of one huge formative experience of wrongness and, and that's what launched the book, uh, if only because it would be a good, simple story, right? Like, oh, you know, <laughs> I was 29 years old and I suddenly learned I'd been adopted. Or <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, fortunately in that case, but it wasn't like that at all. I actually, my background is in magazine journalism and at the time, I was working on several different articles, and they, they just appeared to be absolutely unrelated to each other. I mean, one was about a political convention in Texas, and one was about uh, the, the work of a cognitive psychologist, so really seemingly very different stories. And at some point, and this part really was an epiphany, I, I just was walking home and I realized, oh, all of these five or six different stories that I'm thinking about have this kind of unspoken subterranean theme, and that theme is wrongness. And I knew right away from there that I, I was really interested and in, that this was something I, I wanted to write a book about. Well, can you give us and our listeners kind of an overall summation of what you were trying to cover in the book in terms of you know being wrong in general? Sure. I think I often describe this book as being about how we as a culture think about wrongness and how we as individuals feel about it. So I look at both what I think of as almost the intellectual history of error. How has this idea taken shape in our culture? What are the different models we have from philosophy and science and theology and psychology for thinking about human error? And then how, given that cultural context, do all of us respond when we're in a situation where we make a mistake or where we're in a disagreement with someone, when someone thinks that we're wrong and we think that person is wrong? So that's kind of the very broad brush overview of the book. What do you think causes us to be incorrect? 
Well, you know, fundamentally, we, we are a deeply fallible species. We have these amazing, amazing human minds. They're very, very good at a lot of things, but they're also tasked with a really complicated job, which is to make sense of the world around us. And the world around us turns out to be a confusing place. You know, it is a noisy information environment. There, there's a lot of uh, different kinds of evidence that we take in all the time on a daily basis from a lot of different sources. And then there's a lot of evidence that we never do see that's occluded from us, either because of you know our own particular emotional setup or the community we live in, or just because there's information that human beings can't detect in the world around us. And given that, of course, we're going to get stuff wrong. You know, we we are simultaneously driven to explain the whole world. You know, we, we fundamentally love to invent theories and, and, and stories to account for the world around us. And we don't have direct, complete, unmediated access to it. So there's a lot of wiggle room for error in there. It's interesting because people have always claimed that you learn the most from your mistakes. And I kind of believe that that was just a way of trying to make me feel better after I made a big mistake. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think that that's how we learn? I absolutely think that error can be a, a really wonderful and important learning tool. But the thing is, for that to work, you have to actually be willing to sit with the error. You have to be willing to think about it a little bit. I mean, if you make a mistake and your impulse is to deny it or ignore it or run away from it or blame it on someone else, you probably aren't really going to extract a lesson from that. On the other hand, if you really can kind of face the mistake, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, what's happening when something goes wrong? You, you've had this belief about the world and it suddenly collapses out from under you. And what you have to do in that moment is reevaluate the world or, or that piece of it that you were wrong about. So it's this real opportunity to suddenly see everything around you in a new light and you have to put together the picture in a new and different way. And to be honest, we don't get that kind of opportunity that often in adult life. But our mistakes are that rare moment when suddenly we get a chance to actually have a really you know, new, fresh outlook on our environment. While you were mentioning that, I was thinking, you know, when I'm wrong, if I could only look at the other side and learn from it, where I find too often all I want to do is prove my own side, regardless of if I'm right or wrong. It seems so difficult to kind of step back and go, okay, I'm wrong. Now let me learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's any comfort, you're not alone. <laughs> I mean, one of my one of my favorite stories about wrongness uh, early on in the process of working on the book, I was telling a, a kind of acquaintance who I'd met at a party had asked me about it, and I was telling him what the book was about, and he confessed to me that that very often when he's in the middle of arguing with his wife and he suddenly realizes that actually she's right and he's wrong, instead of just backing down in that moment and saying, oh, you know, sorry, sweetheart, you're right here, he starts spontaneously inventing facts to support <laughs> his position. Right. And, and I just love this story because I feel like we all do this. You know, we have this weird impulse to shore up our rightness, even when we actually know we aren't right. It's so hard in that moment to just step back and say, you know what, I blew it. Do you know why we do that? Why, why do we have to try and be right, even knowingly being wrong? Well, I think a lot of things are going on. I think one is that, you know, we, we associate 
being right, with being intelligent, with being worthy, with being responsible, you know, with having a good memory and good judgment and all of these things. And conversely, we associate being wrong with uh, some kind of mark of intellectual or moral inferiority. You know, we think that getting something wrong means that there's something wrong with us. So given that that's the sort of loudest lesson about wrongness that we pick up from our culture, it's not very surprising that we have trouble owning up to it. You know, it feels like a blow to the ego. But I also think that one thing that's happening is, you know, it's surprising to be wrong. We, we do have this kind of default assumption that we're right. And so we move through the world that way. And when we turn out to be wrong about something, especially if it's an interpersonal context, you know, like the situation, this guy, he's arguing with his wife. What you're called upon to do that moment is quite challenging. You have to both realize your error make your own internal peace with it, which is tough because you're so thrown. It is confusing. You thought you were right. That's why you're kind of making the claims you're making. And you have to suddenly readjust everything. And at the same time, externally handle it and take responsibility for it in some hopefully graceful way. So that's actually quite a lot of intellectual and emotional work to do in a very small amount of time. So in some ways, I, I think it's not that surprising that we aren't good at this. Also, we don't practice. <laughs> but at anything, you don't practice. I watched a uh, discussion you gave at PopTech, and you were talking about how feeling wrong, you know, if, if we learn to accept it and recognize it and what it can do for us actually feels just as good as feeling right. I mean, do I have that? I think that some of the times that's true. And I, I want to be a little bit careful because obviously there are situations where being wrong does not feel good and should not feel good. You know, right. medical mistakes, uh, you know, misidentifying a, a suspect in a criminal trial, a, a problem, you know, a problem with a deep water oil rig, just to give a random example. <laughs> yeah. The stakes are so serious that no, it doesn't feel good and it shouldn't feel good. But outside of those kinds of very high risk domains, yeah, a lot of the time I think that being wrong can and should be really pleasurable. And the reality is we actually already experience this, but we don't realize it. I mean, when you think about it, people love things like optical illusions. We love magic shows. We love suspense. We love surprise endings. I mean, think about the movies and the literature that you yourself are most drawn to. All of these, a lot of them really, really function and pivot on the pleasure of, of you, the reader or the listener or the audience being wrong. It's That's what's so delightful about, you know, much of what we consume culturally. But in our sort of day-to-day -day lives, we really struggle with that experience of being wrong. Whereas I think that often when the stakes aren't so steep, if we could let go of it, there are a lot of ways that, that the experience of error is a pleasurable one. It is, as I said, this moment to really reconsider the world. I mean, I'll, just to be a little bit more concrete, my background before writing this book was, as I mentioned, in magazine journalism, and, and a lot of it was as an international journalist, and so I traveled a lot. And the thing about traveling is that I mean, you're wrong hourly. You know, you're wrong about absolutely everything from like how to conjugate a word, verb or, or what a certain word means to how an entire culture works or, or how you thought your culture worked. And that kind of wrongness to me is so pleasurable. It's, it just shakes everything up and, and reconfigures the picture. And it's, you know, it, it's so invigorating. It's so thrilling. And I think that very often wrongness gives us a, a moment to have a kind of little micro experience like that. But we've very seldom avail ourselves of it. As you mentioned, with some things, when being wrong is pleasurable, it's easier to kind of look at it that way. But I know that the decisions that I've worried the most about, primarily things like, you know, maybe what college to go to or what 
job to take if you have a couple options or what career path to follow, which most most people I feel like don't even know until it's too late anyways. But given all your studies with being right versus being wrong, do you have any advice on how to be right more often? Well, I mean, I should say up front that I don't... I didn't set out to help people be more right, mainly because I think that all of culture encourages us to be right and praises us and rewards us when we're right from the time you're in, you know, first grade taking a spelling test on. And I, look, I'm not trying to knock being right. I think that there's uh, there are contexts, as I said, where it's really important. But for the most part, I think that we would stand, we really could stand to get better at being wrong, you know, at handling uh, mistakes and errors and doubt and indecision more gracefully. And paradoxically, I think that the more that we can embrace the possibility that we're wrong, the, the less likely we are to make mistakes. So while I'm not trying to, you know, write some kind of manual about how to be perfect and make fewer mistakes, I think that a healthier attitude toward being wrong can actually help us prevent mistakes where it matters and embrace them where it doesn't. And, and in situations like the ones you're describing, you know, which college, which career, you know, those are, those are interesting examples because what is the right decision? You know, how would you know at 17 which of three schools was the right one for you? And, and what makes you so sure there is a right one? These are really different paths. They're going to take you to really different places. They're also not endpoints. It's not like you make that choice and, oh, you're done choosing. You know, they, they unfold into many, many more choices, including the possibility of changing your mind and transferring and going somewhere else. And this is true, I think, for a lot of the decisions we agonize about in life that, you know, yeah, it's tough to make that call because we can sense that we're foreclosing opportunities. But, you know, life is long and complicated and a lot of those opportunities remain open or new ones open up to us. And I think making peace with that element of uncertainty can save us all a lot of anxiety. That's a good way of kind of summing up your book. You know, you can be wrong, but you can learn from it. It's a, It makes the decision-making process easier. Absolutely. And I think as long as you do learn something from that mistake, it's, a, you know, all, all was not lost. Right, right. Do you think that as a person experiences more things, kind of becomes more worldly, perhaps reads more, travels more, they become wrong less often because they have more experiences to draw from? Probably not. <laughs> you know, sure. In this, I, I think that as you as you develop expertise in a field, I mean, someone once famously quipped that a, an expert is someone who's made all the mistakes you can make in a very narrow field. And so, yes, it, you know, there's there's ways that. In that very literal sense, we do learn from our mistakes. You make a mistake, you think, wow, you know, well, I'm never going to do that again. And so you, you know, you don't, you don't repeat that same mistake, hopefully. And eventually you have made a lot of the available mistakes in a narrow range. So in that sense, yes, I think that the longer you do any one thing, uh, the more you, you rule out certain errors just by virtue of having already made them. On the other hand, I think that uh, just experience in the broad sense, you know, traveling, reading, meeting a lot of different people, I would say that that kind of experience doesn't make us less error prone, but it makes us more at peace with wrongness. I mean, I often think that this idea of wisdom is really, is, is fundamentally about sort of embracing the likelihood of the error, embracing uncertainty, embracing multiple points of view, and uh, and not having this kind of fear or shame-based reaction to it. So I wouldn't say that it's that we make fewer mistakes. I would say that it's uh, we, we spend less time agonizing over them. I like your description of wisdom there. It's one that's not too common, but I, I agree with that. I was just thinking that's interesting. What do you think about 
technology and the way it has changed the inability to be wrong. For example, John and I oftentimes will get in an argument about God knows what it could be, football statistics or something. And before either of us even go to formulate our own point of view, we just pull out the iPhone, go to Google, and we know the right answer right away. I mean, it's changed the way that we want to be right so often that we don't even formulate our own opinions sometimes. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot, actually. The Google example is a really interesting one. You know, all of a sudden we have a kind of instant adjudicator available to us. And um, I see both a loss and a gain there. On the loss side, I, I miss that experience of kind of arguing it out and, and thinking things through and sort of dredging through your memory and trying to come to your own conclusions. And I think there's something very beautiful about that process. And I think there's something beautiful about that process even when we're wrong or even, and I write about this extensively in the book, when, when we have no idea, right, when we're making it up, when it's all sort of an exercise and, well, I know, you know, three facts about string theory and now I'm going to, you know, expand them into, <laughs> into some giant claims that I have no grounds for making. You know, obviously, taken to a logical extreme, that kind of behavior can be problematic. But as a sort of human interchange, I think that process of just testing the waters, you know, testing theories and hashing things out is a great one. And I do think that we do that less often now that it is so easy to just turn to a, a theoretically accurate source of authority like Google. On the other hand, I can imagine that instantaneous access to so much information could teach us to be a little bit better at being wrong in that it's a it's a feedback mechanism. And I think it's really important to have feedback mechanisms. I mean, there's a reason that people like meteorologists and sportscasters are actually, in my experience, really humble and frank about mistakes because they make a judgment call, you know, <laughs> win the game and like, whoops, the Steelers didn't win, right? <laughs> And, and they just know right away, oh, I blew it. I got it wrong. And, and that kind of feedback mechanism of, oh, I thought I was going to be right and actually I was wrong, really does keep people connected to their fallibility in a way that I think is very healthy. And so there's a way that I think that, that Google and, and just sort of the, the vast quantities of information at our fingertips in general could, in theory, remind us all to be a little bit modest in our claims to perfect knowledge. That's so true. I mean, if you can't, you know, you can't just go up making stuff up. I remember, you know, before the smartphone, if somebody asked me a statistic, oftentimes I'd know I was close and I would just say it anyways, because what are they going to do, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I did want to, you know, again mention your book, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. It's terrific. Um, it's on Amazon, and we'll have a link to it on our site so our listeners can just click and, and buy. Did you have somewhere else you would like to also let our listeners you know, lead them to? Well, they're certainly welcome to check out my website, which is just beingwrong.com. And, uh, you know, I, I adore Amazon, but as a longstanding fan of indie bookstores, I'll also just say it's available in all of those too. And uh, if you want to just <laughs> scroll into one or look it up online, it's another great way to get the book. All right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. And, um, you know, best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Have a great Bye. day. I hope you enjoyed what Catherine had to say. Again, her book is Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. I hope that by listening to this episode, you won't have to sleep on the couch as much after getting in an argument with your wife or your husband, if your husband makes you sleep on the couch, actually. I would reconsider that. But, you know, next time you, you get in an argument or you might be wrong about something, think about how you can learn from it. I'm going to try and do the same. 
I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, but I would like to gain some wisdom, as she explained. Just wanted to give you guys a reminder that you can contact us on our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can also get in contact with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And now for another fast-breaking news story. Okay, that was officially our first in-episode sound clip, and we wouldn't use it unless this was very important. For those of you who have hung around this long, we have a treat for you. As you may be aware, in our last episode, we interviewed Dan Goldie, financial advisor and author of The Investment Answer. Well, Gen Musico at Grand Central Publishing was kind enough to provide us with four hardcover copies of Dan's book, and we're going to give them away to you guys for free. There are two easy ways you can win a copy of the book. One, go on to Twitter and tweet something kind about the podcast, and be sure to include at smartpeoplepod in your tweet. So just type a tweet, you know, love the podcast, at smartpeoplepod, and that notifies us and we know that you'd like to, you know, get a free book. Also, you can go on to Facebook and do something similar. Post a status update, something kind about the podcast, and include at smartpeoplepodcast. Again, this will just notify us through our Facebook page that you like the podcast and you want to be entered into the contest. We're then going to select four people at random and send you your copy of the book. The post doesn't have to be special, just a quick little note. We want to make it easy on you guys. And that's it. We'll contact the winners, we'll let them know they won, and ship them their book. We'll also announce it on our next episode. We are going to try to continue to do this anytime in the future when we can get our hands on some books, just so we can, you know, pass something along to you guys. It's a little thank you for listening. All right. As always, music in this episode is brought to you by The Outdoors. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. 